Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is Episode 6, Arab Alchemy. In this episode, we shall discuss the spread of alchemy throughout the Arab world. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. When we last left off, the Roman Empire was collapsing with an unfriendly attitude towards Egyptian chimea, the Egyptian art. Plato's Academy in Athens closed in 529 after 800 years, so the last practitioners fled with whatever they could carry to the east, to Persia. Some manuscripts also found refuge in dissident Nestorian monasteries, but these were also banished and moved to Persia as well, where the Greek texts were translated into Aramaic, the common language of the Near East. Greek philosophy was welcomed in Persia through the 6th and beginning of the 7th century CE. Then the Arabs started conquering the Middle East, radiating out from the Arabian Peninsula in 641 CE, strengthened by the new religion of Islam. They laid siege to Constantinople, the capital of the Byzantine Empire, eastern successor to the Roman Empire, in around 670. To their surprise, they were driven off by one of the last displays of Greek practical chemistry surviving from Rome, that is, a substance called Greek fire. Greek fire was a flaming weapon thrown at attackers. Its precise recipe is lost, though something similar was described by Roman writer Julianus Africanus in the 3rd century CE. Take equal amounts of sulfur, rock salt, ashes, thunderstone, and pyrite, and pound fine in a black mortar at midday sun. Also in equal amounts of each ingredient mixed together black mulberry resin and zacinthian asphalt the latter in a liquid form and free-flowing, resulting in a product that is sooty-colored. Then add to the asphalt the tiniest amount of quicklime. But because the sun is at its zenith, one must pound it carefully and protect the face, for it will ignite suddenly. When it catches fire, one should seal it in some sort of copper receptacle. In this way, you will have it available in a box, without exposing it to the sun. If you should wish to ignite enemy armaments, you will smear it on the evening, either on the armaments or some other object, but in secret. When the sun comes up, everything will be burnt up. The Byzantine version was supposedly invented by Kalinikos during the siege of Constantinople. At that time, Kalinikos, an artificer from Heliopolis, fled to the Romans. He had devised a sea fire which ignited the Arab ships and burned them with all hands. Thus it was that the Romans returned with victory and discovered the sea fire. It was, however, a military secret, so the recipe is now lost. And here, the word Romans refers to the Byzantine Roman Empire. Soon after, the Arabs encountered Persia with Greek philosophers in Chimea. Given their losses at Constantinople, perhaps the Arabs decided to preserve the Greek knowledge residing now in Persia as worth further study. Henceforth, the Greek word chimea entered into Arabic as alchimia. The prefix al means the, so alchimia means the Egyptian art. 
Later, the word passed into European languages as alchemy, and so we know it today. The fascination the Arabs had with alchemy is evidenced by numerous chemically related words in English from Arabic: alkali, alcohol, naphtha, zircon, alembic, carboy, and more. The most famous of the Arab alchemists was Jabir ibn Hayyan, who lived from about 721 to about 815. He was born in Kufa, about 150 kilometers south of Baghdad. Hundreds of years later. Europeans learned of his deeds under the name Jeber. Among the chemicals he described were ammonium chloride and white lead. He was able to make acetic acid, the strongest acid yet known, by distilling vinegar. He was also able to make dilute nitric acid. Around this time, medicinal practical chemistry advanced significantly. A pharmacopoeia dating from 870 noted 585 drugs in use. Pharmacists made these medicines into pills, powders, syrups, plasters, and poultices. But Jeber was more famous for his interest in transmutation of cheap or base metals into gold. He regarded mercury as the most metallic of all metals because it was liquid and therefore contained the least amount of earthy quality. On the opposite side, sulfur was the most burnable of materials, and it was yellow like gold. So Jeber reasoned. Metals contained varying proportions of mercury and sulfur. He further argued that finding a particular substance that would help the mixing of mercury and sulfur together to make gold is of high priority. In the last episode, we learned that such a material the Greeks called xerion, a dry powder. In Arabic, the word became al ixir. Centuries later, when Arab writings were brought to medieval Europe, the Europeans called this material elixir. They also called it the philosopher's stone. Not only did the philosopher's stone have the ability to aid transmutation, but it also supposedly could cure diseases and even offer immortality. So the phrase "elixir of life" entered European alchemy. After Jeber, the next famous alchemist was Al-Razi, who lived from about 825 to 925 in Persia. He became known as Razes in Europe. Among his work was describing plaster of Paris and its use in stabilizing bone fractures. He wrote about metallic antimony. To the two principles of Jeber, mercury and sulfur, he added salt. Salt was different from the other two because it didn't burn like sulfur and didn't evaporate like mercury. Al-Razi classified substances by their origin: plants, animals, minerals, or derived from other substances. So. Animal substances would be milk, eggs, urine, bone, and hair. Of mineral origin were boraxes, salts, stones, fusible elements (perhaps this was metal), and spirits. Al-Razi may have been the first person to create a category of acids, what he called sharp waters, such as lemon juice, vinegar, and sour milk. During Al-Razi's time. Caliphs decreed translation of the surviving manuscripts into Arabic, and found that their language wasn't up to the task. So they also decreed a codification of Arabic grammar. Like the various Greek philosophers and their schools of a thousand years earlier, there were schools of Arab alchemy. One of the best known was the Jabirian school after Jeber. 
these alchemists worked on preparation of mineral acids like nitric and sulfuric acid and alcohol using distillation methods. They also expanded the four element theory further so that metals had both internal and external qualities. That is, for example, silver was hot and wet internally but cold and dry externally. And gold was the opposite. Gold was hot and wet externally but cold and dry internally. Arab alchemy became a branching point then between two paths. One alchemical path sought the transmutation for gold, and the other alchemical path led toward medicine and a cure for diseases. The gold-seeking path was called exoteric alchemy and bent toward the practical side of things because the real goal was gold. But there was also another more religious alchemy, determined to find salvation and understand the divine. This was called esoteric alchemy, which probably was founded with the astrological beliefs common in ancient times. Esoteric alchemy thought of their chemical processes as religious allegories with obscure meanings to determine. Therefore, they tended to keep careful records of their observations during their rituals and work, although these notebooks were generally written in a cryptic allegorical code. Alchemists worked both sides of the esoteric and exoteric aisle, for they had to make a living, often as artisans of one kind or another. The esoteric alchemists spent much effort to study the heavens for propitious moments to run their reactions. Understanding the heavens was considered necessary to understand what occurred on earth, and the heavens were thought of as a kind of mirror image of the everyday. Metallurgy was particularly important. Recall that Aristotle believed that rocks grew underground and were alive. So chemical reactions in their furnaces and alembics were magical acts analogous to religious beliefs. Alchemists developed the hermetic seal, though it was attributed to the ancient alchemist Hermes Trimestigus. The hermetically sealed retort, especially when containing metals, was considered a separate realm with heightened divine forces. The chemical changes thus observed became symbolic of the transfiguration of the soul. For exoteric alchemy, which was focused on gold and elixirs, alchemy became a realm of magic. Recall that transmutation included death, rebirth, and growth of metals. So fertility rites were involved with unusual materials like snake venom and rooster combs. Sulfur, that yellow flammable principle according to Jeber, was divine. Small bits of sulfur could produce deep changes of color, and sulfur was a magical material. In the King James Bible, the Hebrew word for sulfur, gafrit, was rendered as brimstone. Sulfurous odors are associated with volcanoes and lightning and earthquakes. Mercury was a magical metal because it did not wet other materials like water did and was nearly impossible to grab onto and pick up. Among the advances in laboratory techniques and apparatus from alchemy were better beakers, distillation stills, and filters. In particular, distillation of what we call organic substances occupied a large fraction of alchemists' work. That is, with wood, animal horn, coal in containers, so that the materials did not directly contact open flames. In this way, yellow fumes emanated from wood, then white smoke appeared when these flames met room temperature air. Upon cooling, the vapors returned to liquid form and the residue of wood was dark tar. 
Now, the alchemists asked themselves, what is the origin of these wood vapors and tarry material? They began to believe that the vapor and tar were actually present in the wood, which contradicts Aristotle's four-element theory. That could not be true, so the alchemists argued that these vapors were more like Aristotle's qualities. That is, the vapors and tars must be philosophical spirits or essences, but became impure after liberation into the actual vapor and tar we see. The spirits were, of course, made of air, fire, earth, and water. So, subtly, we see a slight shift away from Aristotle, but with an Aristotelian justification. But with some more justification, they argued that these principles were combustible and condensable, and that they must be the same as Aristotle's smoky and vaporous underground exhalations growing rocks. There were Arab philosophers and not just mystical alchemists. These philosophers started out as Aristotelian four-element supporters, but many also supported Democritus's idea of atomism. For these philosophers, the way atoms combined created the properties of matter, so that copper was reddish because of the atoms' arrangements in the metal. The philosophers were also interested in the idea of minima, that is, what is the smallest particle of a material that retains its properties? Suppose you crushed salt. How small would the particle have to be before it stopped being salty? What was the minimum size to be salty? The philosopher Abu Rasid, who lived around 1000 CE, said two atoms at least, while Abu al-Hudayl, from around 650, argued for six atoms. Ibn Sina, a contemporary of these two, was known mostly as a physician, but in his natural philosophy he publicly disagreed with Aristotle, especially in that substances lose their identity in reactions. He believed that they retained their identity, and that transmutation was impossible, but there was no way to know for sure till the modern era. In this episode, we have talked about the extensive work in Arab lands on alchemy. China, too, developed some alchemical ideas in parallel. Perhaps there was some interchange between the Arabs and Chinese along the Silk Route. While both sets of alchemists were interested in gold, there was a vast difference in the reason. Western alchemists sought gold often for fortune. Eastern alchemists in China sought gold for eternal life because it was incorruptible, it didn't corrode, and therefore immortal. So their research was more angled toward gold-based elixirs for immortality. It is also possible that because certain minerals like antimony sulfide and tin sulfide look like gold, and may cure intestinal disorders in small doses, the Chinese thought that gold and gold-like materials are, and work, the same. But it is also likely that the idea of searching for the elixir gradually traveled westward to the Arab alchemists. An example quoted in Salzburg's From Caveman to Chemist, itself quoted from the journal Isis, dates from 144 CE in Wei Boyang's Zhou Yi Kantong Qi meaning the kinship of three, in accordance with the Book of Changes. Notes. Gold is incorruptible and therefore the most valuable of things. The men of art, feeding on it, attain longevity. Hoary hair regains its blackness, and new teeth grow where fallen ones used to be. If an old man, he will once more become a youth. If an old woman, she will regain her maidenhood. Such transformations make one immune from worldly miseries. 
Interestingly, this Wei Boyang is supposedly the one who first described gunpowder. Another Chinese invention was paper, which was much cheaper than parchment and papyrus. The Chinese monopoly on paper was broken in the year 751 in Tashkent, when Arab soldiers captured Chinese papermakers and immediately built a paper mill there. Within 400 years, papermaking reached medieval Europe and promoted the spread of books and literacy there. Given the large amount of international trade that the Arabs engaged in, both with Europe on the west and India and China on the east, there was call for testing of purity and identity of materials, despite what Aristotle's theory said. The vast amounts of chemicals the alchemists had by this time forced them into classifying them by physical properties, such as liquidity and how flammable they were. In a way, this was a precursor to modern chemical organization. And underscored yet another slight shift away from pure Aristotelian four elements. In our next episode, we shall talk about the revival of European alchemy in the High Middle Ages. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.